Rainmaker FM. Greetings and welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm your host, Kelton Reed. And this is another special edition of The Writer Files we call The Writer's Brain, a guest series with neuroscientist Michael Gribko. In this episode, we'll dig into the inextricable link between productivity and creativity and the catch-22 so many writers face as a result. This all began when Michael and I started a conversation about why we need to rethink our definition of productivity. As busyness, the cult of productivity, and multitasking seem to have taken over our lives, it's easy to forget that the origins of the word productivity come from the Latin productivitas. Translation, creative power. Creativity, a topic Michael and I have discussed at length on this show, is the beating heart of change, progress, and innovation, but our work-life skills seem to be bending dangerously toward more busy work distraction, inefficiency, and overall life dissatisfaction. And truly scaling creativity requires productivity, so a balance must be struck between the two. Luckily, research scientist Michael Gribko returned to the podcast to help me find some answers from the perspective of neuroscience. If you've missed previous episodes of The Writer's Brain, you can find them all in the show notes, in the archives at writerfiles.fm, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you tune in, join us for this two-part interview. In part one of this file, Michael and I discussed how neuroscience views the complex interplay between productivity and creativity, why writers often struggle to finish longer projects, the great irony of the 10-year overnight success, why so many writing instructors prescribe life experience for great writing, how always-on open concept workspaces can actually hinder both productivity and creativity, and the close study of musicians, artists, and the pitfalls of mapping creativity in the brain. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published, and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am honored to have our uh, returning guest, neuroscientist Michael Gribko, is back. I'm what, honored to be here. What is happening, my friend? Not much. Just getting excited for another episode of the Writer Files. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for coming back to do this, sitting here in the uh, studio once again, face-to-face with uh, Gribs, as we call him, around these parts. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into a subject that has been on the top of our minds for quite a while. I think we've been having uh, discussions here and there yeah, about... there's been a lot of back and forth on this one. Yeah. How productivity and creativity are inextricably linked. And, you know, it's. I, I think we've sat down a couple times to kind of dig into it, at least, you know, from a... Uh, scientific standpoint, you have a very unique 
viewpoint on this. And I think that's why we want to dig into it on the podcast, because, you know, ultimately it's an interesting time in history, I think, for a lot of fields, creative and, and otherwise, you know, we're being asked to do a lot more things with a lot less kind of time maybe energy and resources, but especially from a writing, a writer's perspective, say, you know, it's kind of an interesting interplay of things. So I had written a piece for copy blogger over there on the blog titled uh, Productivity versus Creativity, the Content Creators Catch-22. And I think I, what I was getting at, and especially with kind of that image there, which is the Ouroboros or the... Uh, the, right. the, the snake and the symbol of infinity that yeah, is eating its tail. Yeah. Kind of the idea that these two things are, are, you know, they're just tied together eternally. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting because we see the same relationship coming through in the brain as well with these two things kind of, they're discrete behaviors in one sense, but also, in, also there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of overlap in how the brain deals with these things. Right. And we want to dig into that. Ideally, you know, I, I think what I started out with the idea of kind of this Sisyphean task that we're, <laughs> that, you know, online content creators, freelancers, writers, um, you know, all, all different scientific fields. Um, there is this fallacy of creativity that it kind of happens in a vacuum, right? Like right. it's like, it's this magical or metaphysical thing right. or spiritual or sure. some divine intervention. And we've talked it. we've covered these ideas before in a handful of other podcasts. We've gone through, you know, kind of empathy, storytelling, uh, creativity, yep. especially, and I'll link to all of our previous writer's brain sessions in the show notes of course you can go back and review some of those but i think this is a this is a special one because um we're going to look at the that interplay of productivity and creativity you know and it started with this idea that i think we're you know at this strange time in history it's hard for us to define creativity but productivity obviously is very easy to measure yep but uh, my initial idea was we need to redefine our definition of productivity. So I went back to kind of the um, original definition of productivity from Latin, productivitas, which, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm sure someone will tell me if I'm not. Um, <laughs> but the translation is creative power. And, uh, you know, if you go back prior to kind of the industrial revolution, um, obviously creative, creative ability or creativity was, you know, held in much higher esteem. Yep. And I think we've, we've kind of fallen away from, you know, there's, there's really no way. And, and we're going to talk about this to quantify creativity. Right. It's very uh, difficult. Right. right. And so, you know, that's why it is still held in high esteem, but yeah. and productivity um, can be quantified very easily. That's right. So that symbol of Ouroboros, kind of this endless symbol of eternity is this interplay of, you know, how do we now today in this, in this, you know, this culture, how do we balance the two mm -hmm. healthfully and ideally, you know, get back to a healthier kind of work, yeah. work life balance where we are creative productive and not burning out we're hyper connected and we're also expected to be productive and ultimately creative in these different fields yeah let's talk let's talk more about that i think i've all right i've exhausted the point but <laughs> um yeah this is a interesting topic and it's for neuroscience and it's a hard 
issue to resolve at the neuroscience level, which makes it so compelling. So to get started, I think I sort of have to talk about you know how the sausage is made yeah. um, when it comes to neuroscience. Please and do. This, yeah, and a lot of research in neuroscience depends on this null hypothesis statistical testing. Um, and there's a lot of pitfalls that come along with this. So very basically, like what I do when I'm looking at neurons, I'll monitor a certain activity of a neuron. And then to find out what's causing this activity to change, I try to figure out, about, figure out as many variables as possible. And then I go through and systematically isolate each variable, A, B, C, D, and say, does this variable not affect the activation of a neuron? So I play with this variable, isolate it, and if I see no change in the neuron, neuron's activity, I can say, okay, this variable does not affect it. So we go through this process for all the variables, and then we come up with some that we can't rule out. Um, so this is this very linear systematic approach. The problem is, say I have multiple variables affecting the neuron, I've looked at those in isolation, but when we can't just go back and like sum up each variable and how it affects the neuron and understand what the system is doing, because yeah. each of these variables can go back and play with each other. They interact with each other as well. So that becomes a very difficult task to t do, um, to tease out. Um, it's a very reductionist linear approach. And at the end of it all, the brain really doesn't function linearly. And it's meant to do multiple things at once and live in this dynamic world. So neuroscientists who study behavior have this similar approach. They'll isolate a certain behavior and study it. So they do study things like creativity and productivity. But then they run into a similar problem where most of the tasks we're doing, as we alluded to, aren't purely creative or purely productive. Right. But a combination of both or you have to be doing the both at the same time or going back and forth. So writing is a great example of this. So if you're writing a fictional novel, coming up with the plot, all the plot twists, the quirky characters, that's very creative. Mm -hmm. But the actual process of typing or writing, which has to be done, is productive. Yeah, I mean, if we, could, if we could pause on that point just for a second, because I think this is a fascinating idea, and, and not to stop your train of thought there, but oh, fine. Yeah. I just think that this is, this is the eternal struggle, I think, for writers, is, you know, you, you start out, and this is why so many writers, I think, stall out, like, in the middle of a, a longer piece. Um, and I've talked about this with a lot of different famous writers, is that they meet a lot of novelists, say, who have, like, half of a book done. Right. Or, or several halves of, <laughs> right, right. of pieces done um, and they're just stuck. And, you know, some of it goes to planning and or plotting. Some of it goes to outlining um, or not having a clear vision of, you know, how the story resolves. Right. Um, and a lot of that has to do with productivity. But ultimately, writing itself and, you know, kind of dreaming up the world and doing the, the, the fictional stuff where you're, you're actually surprising yourself on the page or you're coming up with, you know, these uh, flights of fancy or whatever they may be, different uh, uses of prose that might surprise a reader yep. is, is a creative process. Right. And I think, I'm not to beat a dead horse, but, you know, sometimes if you get out of balance on one end right. of the spectrum, you're going to end up 
And we've talked about this in our writer's block episode. I think it ties in deeply to what you're about to get into here. So I just wanted to kind of come right. back to the writer's block piece. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. What? So what I just pointed out, like typing, that's very productive. And the plot design, character design is very creative. But there's also this in-between area, right? Um, that's a little bit of both. So putting the sentences together so it doesn't read like an instruction manual. Yeah. You know, you want to use yeah. prose, a color, colorful language. Um, but while you're writing, not just the physical typing part or writing part, but keeping the plot in line is productive. You have to keep all these facts in a logical order. Um, if the plot starts falling apart, it's not a good story. Sure, sure. Um, you know, you can't kill off a character and then all of a sudden forget about that and bring the character back later. Right. So you have to keep things in a logical, systematic order, but you're still yeah keeping and, a creative plot. And I think that's the, that's the interesting part about genre fiction is that like if you're not studying, you know, whatever genre it is that you might be, you know, writing in, for instance, uh, writing a uh, noir thriller or, you know, that's a very specific type of genre. Yep. And there are, um, you know, clearly defined kind of parameters to these, to yeah. these genres, right? Romance is a genre. Science fiction is a genre. And if you're not kind of following the, the, the rules, yeah. yeah, there are rules to these different genres, obviously, but at the same time we do crave novelty. You, yes. You know, you, you do know that like, um, if you're going to write, if you're going to write something in a genre that like sticks out or stands out and, and is also exemplary of the form, you're going to have to do something creative to right. kind of stick out. You can't just copy what Danielle Steele did or what, you know, Patterson did. Yeah. Uh, you kind of have to put your own spin on it. And that requires creativity right. if you're writing a genre. That's why I think sometimes, I think I had mentioned this, actually maybe texted you yesterday. And I was thinking, yeah, I think some of the highest forms of writing are like creative nonfiction yeah. and or historical fiction, which require, you know, not only the, the creative piece and the pacing piece, but also um, sticking very Yeah, the knowledge in, piece. Yeah, and, and, yeah, the knowledge piece. And, and, and you know, th those are kind of set in stone. Like if you're writing historical fiction, obviously, you know, you're not going to have cars in uh, the 1730s or whatever. Right, right, right. And this, um, I remember listening to your podcast recently with um, Richard Morgan. Oh, uh, you listen I, to my podcast? Yeah, occasionally. <laughs> That's sweet. But yeah, he was talking about writing Thin Air. And yeah. yeah, he got to a point, I remember it stuck out to me. He's like, he was talking about his writing process. And you know, he's, I don't remember verbatim, but something along the lines, he got to a point. He's like, oh, hell, I have to go and figure out how gravity affects blood. <laughs> right. So that's exactly, you know, yeah, that he is got to this stall point. He has an interesting take on science fiction, I think, um, because he, he comes at it from a, a very noir perspective, uh, which is great because he's a student of noir. Um, but then it, like he doesn't, he, he said he wasn't really that worried about like those research pieces. Like he's not spending weeks and weeks right. re researching the science, the science piece of it, which I thought was interesting because some of those like, hard sci-fi guys are like, so adamant and they should be about you know the research and getting the the science right as uh elon Mastai put it and how his uh grandfather be begged him to, if he was going to write sci-fi to get the science right. Right, right and that was so important yeah. to him you know completely the opposite of uh 
Richard K. Morgan's uh, approach. But... That does sometimes when I'm watching or reading sci-fi, that'll the plot will kind of fall apart if the science isn't right, and I I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Elan Mass no, that no. wrote all are wrong today. So I, I'm sorry, not all are wrong tomorrow. So that's the <laughs> sequel. It's not out yet. All right. Well, <laughs> sorry to completely derail the. Where were we? So, something about you? the brain, I think. Yeah, let's talk about um, the brain. Let's so about yeah, yeah, I was just wrapping up the neuroscience process and how we isolate these variables to study them. Um, we take this reductionist approach, and you know, there's pitfalls to that because really these components end up influencing each other to give us these complex behaviors, like being productive and creative at the same time. Yeah. Um, and this is something being dealt with in the field of neuroscience. Um, we're aware of it. There's all sorts of different levels of neuroscience. There's everything psychology, just looking at human behavior, all, right, all the way down to looking at DNA. And there's all sorts of stuff in between. But to, to emphasize that this is, we're aware of this problem as neuroscientists. I came up, found this cool quote by a neuroscientist. He's a neuroethologist, David Marr. And neuroethology is sort of the study of animal behavior, but more in a very naturalistic context. He came up with um, trying to understand perception by understanding neurons is like trying to understand a bird's flight by studying only feathers. Yeah. It just can't be done, cannot be done. Right. Um, but we're, we're, we're attempting to do this. So I'll get into some of the research here um, and, yeah, how we're trying to deal with this. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the iceberg analogy for creativity because so much of it happens uh, beneath the surface, right? right? Um, you you met, had mentioned this previously that we, and I'll quote you here, you had written me that uh, we, we often only experience the end result of the creative process to kind of backtrack a little bit. The painter's masterpiece in a museum, the Pulitzer Prize winning author's book, Grammy Award winning uh, musicians' recordings. But what we don't see are the countless years that a musician spends like practicing scales right. or you know in a studio by themselves frustratedly uh <laughs> trying to you know nail something and and you know on the right. verge of tears uh they're building their knowledge base right right yeah. and uh we can talk more about that obviously as we get more into the science of it but you know it, it is impossible to see those neuronal processes right right um that are at the base level of, of the creative process, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of information gathering early on, mm -hmm. um, and you need kind of that incubation yep. period, um, for your brain to do some of the work for right. you in the background, what you have called the default mode network. Yeah, yeah. And it's also the other thing, it's the amount of time. It's really hard for us to study the brain and understand what's going on in the brain for that long of a time period. We, we usually study, we sort of take a snapshot. That's right. space and time it's really hard to look at these changes that um, happen over a lifetime or several years that's right that's right um so there's a lot there's that kind of the irony of the the t 10 year overnight success right where right. it's always like oh this you know there's a breakthrough new you know our uh, debut author but but what you don't see for instance going back to richard k morgan you know he he had written this book that nobody wanted initially right. and he kept you know he kept kind of getting rejected rejection after rejection and it was like 14 years later that someone you know it, he said the zeitgeist right, right. changed and and suddenly somebody wanted it and then all of a sudden he's a new york times notable and, and best-selling author right. and and he said he was dumped onto the red carpet like overnight and of right. course that's all we see is like the 
Yep. They're, oh, he wrote this great book. He's a debut author. He's an overnight success. Right, right. And you hear about that a lot with composers and artists late in their lives when they get discovered and sometimes after they've passed on, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are so many countless authors. Uh, the author of Moby Dick, for instance, right. <laughs> died penniless. Yeah. 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 That's really awesome. Point out. It's a good one. Let's get more into the uh, the science piece of this interplay. Sure. Um, well, since yeah, we, we're talking about this knowledge base, I'll start there because that's you know just hammering this point home. I think this is really relevant to what the importance of creativity in the future and all this that we have to. It, it's about our knowledge base. It's about the memories we have stored in our brains, and we talked about this when we talked about creativity. So I'll bring this up again and. This is sort of where we see in the central nervous system where we see the first break or divergence between creative processes and, and um, productive ones. You know, we've already defined creativity previously as the result is something that's novel, but also useful, appropriate, or meaningful. For productivity, um, scientists don't study exactly productivity. They don't um, really call it that. They study more things like sustained attention and sustained vigilance, which are very important components to being productive. And the end results of these things are reproducibility, right? When you're mm -hmm. being productive, you want the outcome to be um, the same every time. Sure. You know, um, for instance, when you spell the word productive, you want know, to use the same exact letters in the same exact order, or it's not functional. That's right. <laughs> So these are handled very differently in the brain, these two mechanisms. Um, so before when we were talking about creativity, we talked about um, declarative memory. There's also procedural memory. Uh, and these are kind of the two general categories when we talk about memories. So procedural memories are, can be thought of as motor memories. Things like how to ride a bike, how to type, how to write, how to play a musical instrument, the technical motor aspects of these things. And the cerebellum, which is this area in the brain, back of the brain, is kind of characteristic features, uh, very easy to spot. This is a very important brain region for these kind of procedural memories. So again, this is the really important memory base we use for being productive or doing very repetitive, um, vigilant tasks. But it may not be too important for the creative thought process, creative thought generation. But as we already talked about, you know, this is very important for expressing creativity, right? You can't, if you have a great idea of a novel, you can't pen it, write it, type it. It's kind of useless. Yeah. Declarative memories are sort of this knowledge base of things and places. And these are divided into two categories. Um, in both of, both of these categories, all declarative memories, we see the hippocampus playing a very important role in the formation and recall of these memories. Semantic memory is sort of, can be thought of as common knowledge um, shared by a lot of people. Important historical dates, like famous people, things like this. And this memory is probably important for both creativity and productivity. Episodic memories are more personal and are really 
result of our own personal life experiences, what we've learned, who we interact with. And this is really the pool we're probably dipping into when we're trying to be creative. Mm-hmm. I do find that interesting because I remember earlier, kind of in my writing life, at least when I was in creative, you know, doing creative writing at school, so many writing instructors, you know, had advice like, you know, the, the best, <laughs> the best um, thing you can do for your writing is to just get out there and live, you know, yeah. live and, and live fully so that you can draw on that for, for your writing, which, you know, ties probably pretty closely in with the episodic memory. Yeah, definitely. Um, and how we use that to draw on for prob- probably some of that empathy that's required for great storytelling. Sure. To, to kind of yeah. t- thread those things together, but I'm, I'm, I digress. Yeah, that is very important. And yeah, again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's the importance of learning and forming that pool of knowledge is really doesn't necessarily drive creativity, but it's definitely your, you're not going anywhere without it. If you don't have the ideas in your brain, it's hard to come up with a creative thought to begin with. So how, how does the brain decide what to do? Am I going to use procedural memories, declarative memories? How does the brain select what information to apply to a task we're dealing with in the current moment? What, what knowledge are we going to draw upon? What neural networks? There's a lot to this and it's hard to, again, kind of taking a reductionist method here. And I'm going to focus on the prefrontal cortex. It's an area that's very important for this, but I just want to emphasize this is not the only brain region we're talking about or that's involved in this process. So the prefrontal cortex has repeatedly been shown to play an active role in what we call executive function Um, with activity here being linked to performing tasks that are very cognitively demanding. And studies looking both at sustained attention and creativity um, have strongly implicated the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex can be divided into several regions, um, further divided. And we do a lot of this in science. We keep on, as we learn more, we divide things up and up and up. Um, (laughs) Again, we're trying to reduce it's a reductionist approach. But one of the reason, regions that's important is uh, medial prefrontal cortex, and another region is the dorsal lateral. So I pulled these two regions out to emphasize some points. So although, although both of these regions are important for planning and executing cognitive tasks, um, they have slightly different roles, or they may. It's, that's the picture that's emerging. With the uh, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, taking part in sort of this meta-memory, or uh, which kind of means thinking about the thought. So what knowledge do I need to apply to a certain task and su- selecting the appropriate pool of knowledge to draw in for a task. Hmm. And the medial prefrontal cortex sort of assesses the outcome of what we've done. And I don't know, it's sort of a barometer for measuring if the outcome is appropriate we have to go back, maybe alter something, was the reward we received good enough? Things like this. One thing I want to mention here is the importance of um, acetylcholine. It's um, a chemical released by a basal forebrain mostly, a neurotransmitter. And this is really important in the prefrontal cortex 
um, in certain aspects of it. So it's been shown in some studies that acetylcholine helps us stay focused and increases in acetylcholine while we're involved in a task, increases in the prefrontal cortex has been linked with like avoiding distraction. So staying focused while we're distracted, mm-hmm. which is a really important thing when we're being productive or creative. Hmm. And you think about this, how easy it is to get distracted yeah. when we're doing really productive tasks and how picky people are. Um, you know, I've worked with people who like have to put earplugs in sometimes if they're in a common workplace. Some people at the write in cafes where there's a little bit of background mm-hmm. noise, things like that. Absolutely. So this could help explain some of that behavior. Yeah. You know, something I had mentioned was that, uh, you know, open concept workspaces right. are being shown more often to not really work for yeah. what their intended purpose is to kind of spark creativity <laughs> and or productivity because right. clearly, um, you know, these, these, the, the idea behind it is to, you know, create this interplay of ideas where you're, you know, bumping into people from different um, parts of the, you know, of the company. Yeah. Collaboration. Collaboration. Yeah, golden word. Um, people use more, to sell it. But more often than not, hinder not only productivity, but probably uh, dampen creativity a right. little bit. Um, I think know. it's a good concept that you should have common work or sure. assembly places, but yeah, you need sure. private areas to I mean, be to focus. Well, right? One of the arguments is that, you know, th- that conference rooms and, and meetings uh, inter inter uh com- you know company meetings or don't all don't necessarily spark creativity because they're you, it's the same people with the same ideas yeah. hashing out the same problems over and over where, where what they really do need is some outside um inspiration mm-hmm. yeah, or force absolutely. but and so that's not necessarily happening in those conference rooms right. Um, or in, you know, in that open concept workspace, more often people are just annoyed because they really just want to get some work done. Yeah, and they keep and, on getting interrupted. Right. And they're, they're, you are really forced to put on headphones, put up some kind of a, a yep. privacy barrier yep. um, so that you can get some work done. I've walked by people who have put in like cardboard boxes up. It, like they cut them up and yeah, just so they can work. Yeah. But I think this quote from McKenzie Quarterly um the always on multitasking work environments are killing productivity, dampening creativity, and also making us unhappy. Right. Um, unquote is a, uh, is a great point here. And I think, uh, and I'll let you continue. Sorry if I derailed us no, a this little is an bit, important point, I think. but I think, I Very think, relevant. I think my point was that, um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, because we are being asked to scale, very often our creative abilities and that again requires an extreme amount of concentration and not only that but um the the interplay yeah uh you know we, we're just getting very often derailed by these kind of uh, whatever this this movement is right <laughs> but and so yeah i think another thing i want to plug in here is important to mention um about these open works workspaces it it's dehuman, dehumanizing in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we we need to make phone calls through, throughout the day. I may have to call my doctor and have a you know a personal conversation about some medical condition. And sure, doing that that can be uncomfortable. Um, I ran into a student and saw her like in the corner, like trying to hide almost um, on her laptop with her phone out, and 
talked to her later and she's like, oh yeah, you know, I had some problem with my student loan. So she had to have this financial discussion. Right. And you don't want to do that in an open space. No. So right. it can be, you know, but we're humans and we have to do these things throughout the day and there can be nowhere to hide and get some privacy when we need it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, conundrum, but right. again, that's the whole point of this conversation. <laughs> right. Right. So. Right. To hash these things out. But, and I just read an article actually this morning too. It was in Market Watch, I think, and it was about this and some companies are starting to put in pods, they're calling them. And they're like little phone booths in the open workspaces. So people need to go make a phone call they can <laughs> and get some privacy. Yeah, <laughs> we truly are living in the future. <laughs> we're trying to anyway. Or at least we're living in, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Distorted. Yes. Sad. Pod future. Yeah, so I want to get back to talking about the prefrontal cortex and um, about this reductionist approach uh, and some of the problems we come into um, when we use the reductionist approach and how, again, how the idea of studying productivity and creativity are, are really linked and it's hard to separate them and get a real-life picture or an accurate picture of what we're doing in our day-to-day -day lives. So this first study I want to talk about involves simply jazz musicians and they put them in and um, monitored their brain activity with an MRI. We'll go through that again. We've talked about MRI a bunch. Hey, with, you know, in full disclosure, I did play jazz saxophone. Oh, nice. In high school. Did anyone put you in an MRI? It's kind of nerdy. That would be hard with a saxophone. <laughs> I did not, I did not come anywhere close to a, an MRI in the <laughs> 1990s. <laughs> So this study, uh, it's called Neurosubstrates of Spontaneous Musical Performance, an fMRI study of jazz improvisation. So this, uh, this study is really interesting. So they, they take some piano players, uh, they construct a small keyboard, you know, really limited. They weren't trying to put a you know, baby grand piano in an fMRI machine with a pianist. And they had them just do some improvisation. And... One of the areas of the brain they looked at was the prefrontal cortex. And they found during this creative, spontaneous creative process that the medial prefrontal cortex was active. So leading us to think, okay, we're actively monitoring the situation, what's going on, and getting feedback. What was interesting, they saw inactivation in the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So this sort of very rigid structure that says selects what appropriate knowledge to use for a particular situation. So this study just got a lot of attention. It was even mentioned in an article fairly recently, I think in the Atlantic calling mapping creativity in the brain. And it was because this link between the area of the brain that is important for selecting the knowledge we apply to tasks and creativity. This research though, ran into some controversy. So around the same time this research was being done, there are a couple other studies looking at a very similar paradigm with musicians and fMRI machines. And they found that there was robust activation in the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And furthermore, there were some other studies of creativity, one done looking at art students and having them sketch a book cover design based on a written description. They also found increased activity in the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Uh, this was I think the study was evaluating and generating modes of thought through the creative process. Hmm. So what's going on here? Why, why do we get these conflicting results? So I want to kind of refer back to our introduction. I was talking about pitfalls in neuroscience and how we segregate variables 
to study them in this reductionist approach. This is kind of a good example of why we need to do this. These studies may be looking at two cognitive processes happening simultaneously rather than procedural memories, playing a piano for, and declarative memories, the knowledge used for improvising, are processed and stored using different parts of the brain. So they may, so they may not have teased out the creative process by itself. There's some of this productivity that could be creeping into their paradigm. Mm-hmm. So in some subsequent studies, researchers trying to address this concern developed a paradigm to remove the procedural aspect and isolate the creative component. One of these studies is chain-free association, creativity, and the default mode network. These researchers rely on a verbalization, spontaneous thought, as a readout for creativity. But now we're getting to a very, very simple behavior. Kind of have to ask if it represents what's going on during more complex creative tasks, like writing a novel or developing a scientific theory, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us for a glimpse into the workings of the writer's brain. For more episodes of The Writer Files, or to simply leave us a comment or a question, drop by writerfiles.fm. You can always chat with me on Twitter, at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.